Warning, the following podcast is a shit show, and the individuals you are about to meet are idiots. Their opinions, anecdotes, and advice contain zero nutritional value. This is the critical human condition and all of its strangeness. This is life, according to an idiot. Remember that episode of Full House where Jesse had to wear the pregnancy weight apparatus for, uh, I can't remember, every sitcom was an episode about men yeah. having to feel pregnancy pain. I think it was like a contraction thing where like it shocked him and he felt contractions or something. Oh, yeah, something like that. And then usually they have like the weights. Yeah, it was he was like a weighted belly that he would yeah, carry around. Yeah, and run your shoulders yeah. and it's like, oh, my back hurts yeah. so bad. And he's like, it is hard being a pregnant woman. Da, 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 da. Well, what do you expect? There's like, what, 10 pounds on your stomach? Goddamn. Have mercy. Have mercy. I hated Full House. Did you, Like, you hated it in retrospect? You hated it when it was when I, you were I young? I hated it when it was a thing. I'm sorry. I didn't develop taste until uh, I was like 15. Yeah. And it was a taste for hentai. <laughs> <laughs> I watched a lot of cartoons. I watched everything. Yeah. I just I, I remember as a kid, I would just spend an entire day in front of the TV. Yeah, me too. I would just lie there, and like the light would change outside. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> This is just what life is, I guess. Cool. Right. Whole summers I would do that even. Yeah, no, same. When I was a kid and like I had no friends or anything. Yeah, <laughs> all I would do is play video games and I would watch TV. I had friends. We'd just play video games together and watch TV together. Yeah, that's a great friendship. Yeah. It's like they weren't even there. It's yeah. like neither of us were there. Right. <laughs> it's like, well, it's you bizarre. weren't doing drugs, so I guess. Can... Well, we were seven. That's good. So It's a good activity for a seven-year-old. We seven weren't doing old. drugs yet. <laughs> Welcome uh, to the show, everybody. Yeah, welcome. My name is Kaylee. My name is Jeremy. We're a podcast. We're a podcast. We're casting our pods out at you, hoping that you'll nibble on that pod and we'll reel you in. You're some person probably sitting in a car right now or at a yeah. desk somewhere, and you're listening to me talk right now, and I'm just sitting here and I'm talking into a mic. And it has given her the biggest <laughs> ego boost. There's actually a vein in her forehead forming. It's her ego growing. <laughs> she, can she you gets feel off of it? This. Can you feel my mm, yeah? It's ego make, it swelling? makes the room hotter, and it's uncomfortable. Yeah, it's it's heavy in here now. Yeah. Once you realize that people just want to listen to you talk, how does your ego not swell up? No comment. I'm gonna keep going on that ego trip and talking about how I'm addicted to specialty coffee now. And oh I, yeah, this I is the whole a, thing. I'm a pretentious asshole now. I just heard about this, and now you have to hear about this. <laughs> and go. <laughs> I won't go in depth. Um, uh, <laughs> I, but I will go into it. I will comment on it because <laughs> I I get very passionate about very specific things. Yeah. And I have to share it with as many people as I possibly can because I do not have any self-control. You are actually a person with remarkable self-control and then at the same time, no self-control. I have no self-control when it comes to things I'm interested about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's pretty much the only the only place I just absolutely cannot hold back is if I'm excited mm -hmm. about something or if something has like piqued my interest, I have to tell every single person I come across because yeah. I feel like this thing was hidden from me until yeah. a little while ago right. and now like oh my god it's changed my life right it's, it changes it changes literally by the week I, right. I find something that I get really interested in and I dive into it but yeah uh coffee is my interest right now I'm I'm taking a class on coffee and I'm reading a book about coffee. <laughs> you sound like an alien. Mm, coffee is my interest at the moment. Um, coffee. It is an interesting beverage. For our class, we went and toured a roastery. Mm -hmm. So there were these two guys that founded this company, and they are extremely passionate about coffee. Like, it just radiates off them. And I'm a very empathetic person, so when people get excited about things, I get really excited about right. the same thing. And I'm you like, know what? You would have become a Nazi so quick. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's part of my INFJ personality. Yep. But yeah, I don't know. It was super interesting because I didn't realize that most of the coffee that's sold and people drink is stale. And that's why it tastes bitter. If it's fresh and it's made correctly, coffee is actually sweet. Coffee beans aren't actually a bean. It's from a cherry. Uh, if you didn't know that, it's the seeds of a cherry. I wish so I could they... have, you could have gotten my natural reaction to that initially when you first told me because I was I was excited to hear that. Yeah, it's that weird. Was very, right? that's, that's so weird to me. That's pretty cool. And like originally when coffee plants were discovered, they would use the cherries to like get coffee properties and they would use right. the leaves and make rudimentary tea with it. But they eventually realized that using the beans was the most effective way right this is like primitive people yeah like a long time ago ethiopia is where coffee originated but the story goes that a young 
pilgrim from the Middle East was making its way into Ethiopia to escape. Actually, no. Hold on. That's another origin story. First origin story. Okay. Okay. Goat farmer. Oh, boy. I'm already liking this one more. Yeah. (laughs) So young boy, Mm -hmm. goat farmer, you know, he's out grazing his goats and everything. And they kind of walk around the mountain, you know, get all the different plants. And the goats find this cherry plant and it starts eating the leaves off of it. The goats go fucking wild. Oh. They go insane. Because the caffeine? The caffeine, yeah. So they're like super energized and they're zipping around. And he notices that every time they go around that area... The goats go straight to those plants. After a while, he's like, There's, there must be something to this. Mm-hmm. So he gets the leaves, and he decides to brew it, and he tastes it, and he's like... I understand the goats. Whoop. The goats well, have good taste. Well, hey there, buddy. Wow, this is amazing. And so... So now him and his goats are all like just on speed together. Yeah. Ultimately, it brought him closer to his goats. That's yeah. kind of a sweet story. Yeah. So... Also kind of risky because like animals can sometimes be obsessed with any kind of consumable thing. Like, for right. example, my dog likes to go out in the backyard after it's rained and lick up dirty, stagnant pools of water. Gross. And so if one day I was like, <laughs> you know what? There's something to that water. The dog loves it. I should <laughs> I should drink it. That'd be the weirdest thing ever. And But maybe it's really good. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, what I'm what I'm trying to say is, um, I'm thinking about drinking stagnant water, or coffee, or coffee. Maybe it's that's basically a new coffee. the same thing. That's coffee to my dog. He he fucking loves dirty water. Yeah. I try to stop him just for the PETA folks. I try to stop it. But you can't you can't stop. <laughs> no, the, you, the you can't stop goats and you can't stop puppies. That's what we've learned dog. today. Nope. We also learned that coffee comes from cherries and it's supposed to be sweet. And you're probably drinking stale, gross coffee. Yep, you're probably worse than Kaylee. You're worse than me. How does that feel? Get on the specialty coffee train. Climb up on this pedestal, folks. Join me up here. It feels great. Feels great. Resting beside her is a can, an aluminum can of coffee. A specialty coffee. Cold brew. Cold brew. I never thought I'd see the day. It's so good, though. I had some. It was actually excellent. I was surprised. I was so ready to like shit on what she was talking about. I was like, oh, let me try this coffee. And it was good. It was. It's so good. It's so smooth. And that's the thing. It's like... It really, like, fills your mouth. Like, when they talk about the aroma, the body, the taste notes, and I really got what they meant when they said the body. Look at that body. Which is weird. Look at that body of that bean. Look at that body. Yes. So much body to this beverage. Mm. But, yeah, there's so many different ways that you can roast coffee and, like, the way that you manipulate the temperature and the how long you roast it for and the way that you roast it. You can get, like, caramel flavors. You can get chocolate flavors, nutty flavors, fruity flavors, like... You can do so many different things with just the roasting process. Right. All of these factors go into that final cup of coffee that you have. That's very interesting. And it made my brain very happy. <laughs> right, right, right. Oh, the caffeine probably helped with that yeah, too. Yeah, the caffeine yeah. helps. So I don't know. There's a, there's an interesting little tidbit for you guys. So I do have a science corner as well. Double the science, double the fun. Science is cool. And today we are cool. So my science corner is all about babies, huh? which is weird because I don't like them. I was going to say, I never thought you'd willingly talk about babies. Me neither. So the science corner this week is going to be about pregnancies and if you have a trigger about maybe failed pregnancies or complications, complications, then maybe skip this part uh, right here. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, Okay. (laughs) So I learned the other day that fetuses inside a woman's stomach, uh, you know, still unborn. Uh, Kaylee, the fetus is in the bladder. The fetus. Get your words right, please. The fetus grows in the breast. (laughs) (laughs) You got twins there. (laughs) That's why they grow bigger. (laughs) (laughs) Repulsive. And then they're birthed from the nipple. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Uh, Yeah. So just stop and think about a a baby coming out of a boob. Uh. My mind's never, my, like, literally, like, that's the first time. That's a perfectly new boob thought. I've never thought that. I thought a lot of things about boobs. Never thought of a baby uh. coming out of it. <laughs> uh, gross. <God. laughs> Anyways, on to this Ugh, fun thing. Fuck. Fetuses can turn to stone. Oh, this and, isn't fun. <laughs> and, and stay inside their mothers for decades. Is this while they, like, grow and evolve and they come out stronger? No, like they turn to stone, like actual stone. Like granite? 
This is my son, Granite. <laughs> so Stone Babies. I think I've heard about this before. Stone Babies, yeah. yeah. So the backstory of this, a few years ago. It's like a superhero origin story. In the lab one night. In the hospital, actually. A 75-year-old Moroccan woman mm. went in with abdominal pain. And they did a bunch of scans on her because they couldn't figure out what was going on. And it showed a large mass in her abdomen, which doctors found to be a baby that she had conceived 46 years. That's an old baby. Before that, yeah. That's so, a baby with credit card debt and yeah, like right. a divorce. That is, a, that is an adult. So this condition is called lithopedons or stone babies. And there are about 300 cases of this happening. So it's fairly rare. Oh, okay, very rare. Very rare. Well, 300 known cases. I'm sure there's... 300, yeah, known cases. Yeah, I'm so sure it's hard more. to diagnose if there's no pain. Right. You know, yeah. otherwise, why would you know? I think the women know. Like that Moroccan woman, she knew that she didn't give a birth to a baby. She probably thought she had a miscarriage or something. The, or she I'm might not have of... even known that she was pregnant and just thought it was a regular menstrual period when i was a kid i was afraid to poop <laughs> and so i held it in for a long time and i think it's like that she held in her baby complete conjecture i am 100 percent projecting my own issues onto this woman but i'm thinking she was afraid she held in this poop of a baby that's what i would do i think i would do that too because i would be afraid to give birth oh yeah if i was a woman that'd be my biggest fear is giving Million birth percent. that's my biggest fear for sure so what happens with this condition is that the woman has an abdominal ectopic pregnancy. So what that means is usually when your egg leaves your ovary, there's like a gap between your ovary and your fallopian tube, which the egg travels down to to get into your uterus, right. which hopefully at some point during that, a sperm will meet it, form baby, attaches to the uterine wall where it grows, and out it comes nine months later. Right. Sometimes what will happen... Or 47 years later. 47 years later. <laughs> uh, sometimes what will happen is the sperm usually fertilizes the egg in the fallopian tube. Yeah. So sometimes it, the egg will become fertilized, but it won't go through the fallopian tube because there's a little gap, and it'll actually attach itself to the abdominal wall instead. So this can become extremely dangerous for the mother and eventually fatal for the child as well because it's not viable in the abdomen and you know mother dies child dies it's a bad very um, tragic very I think tragic that, isn't that a risk with certain iud's yeah yes iud's can increase the risk so usually what happens is you have to get rid of the fetus i think now there some surgery I, I think i read that they were able to reattach it to the uterus so that might be an option and like save the pregnancy yeah and save the wow. pregnancy but Usually for ectopic pregnancies, they get rid of it or else the mother will eventually right, die from right, it. Right. Uh, it can kill you. Sometimes what will happen is the body will actually reabsorb the child as well. Like if, you know, it doesn't cause a bunch of complications, the body will recognize it's not supposed to be there and it'll just reabsorb it. What happens with the stone babies is instead of it being reabsorbed by the body... It's instead treated as a foreign invader, and it's covered with a bunch of calcium, like a calcium-type oh, substance. Right. So what happens is the fetus ends up being covered in this really protective layer, hard as a rock. Jesus. Because it's a bunch of calcium, and it can go decades without really causing any problems or without the mother really knowing about the mass. They can still continue to have healthy children while carrying the stone baby. Oh, so you can give birth while still having a stone baby? Yeah, because it's in your abdomen. It's not wow. in your uterus. Yeah. Whoa. In my mind, I thought it was, it was like a fairly developed fetus. It doesn't have to be. No. Wow. So it could just be like a kidney stone. Yeah. kind. Of, it could be. Yeah. I mean, depending on how far along it got. Right. For sure. Can you imagine the flip side if you gave birth to just an inordinately large kidney stone? Ew. That'd yeah. Be wild. Like a, that's like a county fair kind of thing. Right. You bring that thing around in a, in a radio flyer and you say, look at this. Look what I pushed out. But yeah, I, don't know. I, I read that and I was like, that's wild. Ugh. That's fascinating, though. That's a good science corner. Thank you so much. That creeps me out. You know what makes me really uncomfortable? Yeah. The men in black. Oh, I see where we're going. All right. You remember from last time, part one? Well, now we're into part two. So we are revisiting the story of the Mothman of Point Pleasant. There's a lot to this story. As we discussed last week, um, I got a bulk of my information from the Mothman Prophecies book by John Keel. Very interesting read. We're going to learn more this time, a little bit more about Mothman, a little bit more about the finer details of the story. Yes. And uh, just more some really... recent Mothman developments as well. Oh, who knows? Who knows? Me. I will. I'll you tell knows. you about it. <laughs> <laughs> straightforward, getting the straight news from Bailey. <laughs> Let's spread our wings and fly away into 
The Mothman Mysteries Part 2. Sharing their curiosity to know the unknown, their tension, their readiness for inconceivable adventures. Is it human or inhuman? Earthly or unearthly? When the headlights hit it, it turned and looked at him, and they said, that's not a man. And we still get reports of these very strange visitors dressed in black clothes. He said, we will see you again. And uh, I have a feeling that he will. Unbelievable. Fantastic. But I tell you, it could happen. I really wanted to start off wrapping up, not wrapping up, but uh, what would you ramping call up, ramping the fuck up. I'm gonna vroom, vroom. I'm gonna take a shot of motor oil and vroom, see what vroom. comes out the back end. Probably motor oil. Probably <laughs> will will not break down in your stomach. I got a four horsepower stomach. <laughs> Is four horses a lot? Horsepower usually like modern engines are probably I'd say around 120 horsepower. 120 horses. Yeah, somewhere around there. How do they measure a horse? You just you do. You just assume. I feel like 120 horses would pull this car at the same speed. What speed? Horsepower. Okay. How strong a, a horse, horse is. Can a horse run 80 miles an hour? If you have 120 of them, yeah. If you I, if you I'm, pile up 120 horses, they can go any speed you want. That's, that's a powerful horse. How you pile them up? Like a house of guards or like just getting them Surgically. In the horses <laughs> just become one glabrous mass. <laughs> Surgically, and it races the going, cars. We're going to surgically pile these horses. <laughs> I can't go to work tomorrow, boss. I got I got surgery. What's what's the operation? Oh, um, they're gonna pile me into other <laughs> men, and we're gonna pull machines. Lord help me. Uh, hurry it up, Jeremy. Get to your goddamn segment. All right, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> I want to open up this with a quote. You remember from last time, the Mothman famously stocked down a, a car full of yeah. young lovers. Keel writes. Like flying saucers, it delighted in chasing cars, a very unbird-like habit, and it seemed to have a penchant for scaring females who were menstruating. Ew. John Keel, The Mothman Prophecies, okay. page 82. Has he never <laughs> met a goose? Because geese love chasing Of all people. the things I thought you were going to say, I did not expect, has he ever heard of a goose? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, we're going to talk about the period part later. But <laughs> I hope we don't. What bird chases after a human? That is uncharacteristic. Uh, excuse me, have you ever heard of a fucking goose? Well, here's the thing. I think he was talking specifically about cars, which is also untrue because, as you remember from last week, you mentioned the Sandhill Crane theory. Yeah. Well, guess what I learned, Kaylee? Yes. Sandhill Cranes often chase cars <gasps> because no! of the reflective lights on the windows. Interesting. Oh, they think it's a mate or something? I think they, they, get, just, real, they, I get, think they real just get horned excited. up. They just get excited. We always think that animals can't chase after things unless they want to fuck it. That's not true. That's true. They I chase like after friends. things all the time that I don't fuck. Like uh, your dog. Like my dog. <laughs> yeah, like my dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah, know. Like the ice cream truck. Yeah. Think of it that way. It's true. When, when, when a person is running towards an ice cream truck, they do not want to, you know, right. mate with the vehicle, perhaps maybe the individual on board, if yeah. they know them. But I think a bird can stalk a car just because the windows are shiny because they're like, I want to eat the shiny. That's true. I just think uh, most people think of animals as very primitive. And when you think primitive, you think eat, sleep, fuck. So yeah. like that's just what you assume, I, I guess. And, I, and I think you are what is wrong with America. So uh, Probably. But like I can see why people would go for Sandhill Crane. It's kind of fascinating. Going back to the Scarberry Millet incident with the two couples in the car. Right. Mary Millet had said that she could hear the Mothman making a noise during the chase by the TNT area. And she said it squeaked like a big mouse. And right now I'm going to play a soundbite of a uh. Sandhill Crane making a call. And you're going to you're not going to hear it, Kaylee, but the listeners are going to hear it. And they're going to say, you know what? I think from a distance I could think that's a big mouse. Really? You think so? Yeah. So just playing both sides of the field there. When the creature finally ended its pursuit, it did fly away in the story, and it had done so almost exactly at the city limits. Interesting. Like it's territorial. And I was trying to look up if Sandhill cranes get like that, but I couldn't find I anything. I would assume so. Kind of makes sense. And also people were talking about how if it was a crane that had nested or grown up in the TNT area, you talked about last episode, the contamination levels in the TNT area, a lot of toxic right. chemicals. It could have been a mutated crane. 
It could be. Maybe there's a whole family of sandhill cranes at that TNT area and generations and generations right. of mutations. Boom. Now you got some weird fucking looking sandhill crane. That's a possibility. And if you look at a sandhill crane, they're some of the oldest birds. And so when they when they fly, they've got like legs that hang down. And it kind of <laughs> looks like, you know, like in a carnival when you're at that big swing machine where like yeah. 50 people are on a swing. It's like that where they kind of dangle like that. So that's if funny. somebody saw that, they'd probably be like, oh, what the fuck is that? That's not a bird here. <laughs> I think that's where it gets mixed in. I think you could argue that potentially there was something else. Mm -hmm. And then there was also sandhill cranes. There was definitely something else happening. Yeah. I don't know what it was, if it was a prank or if it was real. Weirdly enough, though, Roger Scarberry claimed the Mothman had been able to keep up with their vehicle when it was going around 100 miles per hour. It was flying overhead, and it did not once flap its wings. What? Yeah. Which does kind of kill the cran... The the Cranhill Sane theory, <laughs> the Sandhill Crane theory, because or that does throw a, a wrench in were that. were the wings moving so fast that you couldn't see it, was, it like a hummingbird. <laughs> like a helicopter. Yeah. Which is, honestly, it's described as a helicopter, the Mothman, the way it takes off, because it takes off directly upward. Right. That's another weird thing about the, the Mothman is that it, while it's so, it's relatively graceful in the sky, like it can just shoot up and go at these insane speeds, whenever it's described on land on its legs... It sort of hobbles, like it's not graceful whatsoever. Right. Again, still on the Scarberry Millette case. In the week following the traumatic encounter, Roger and Linda Scarberry experienced unsettling activity in their mobile home. Ghosts. They were hearing these beeps and loud garbled noises, quote, like a sped up phonograph record. They were so disturbed by this, they actually moved out of that home and moved into Linda Scarberry's parents' basement. Their parents, they're the McDaniels. Mm -hmm. And they'll come into play a little bit later, too. I'm just, like, imagining the Mothman sneaking into their house and moving things around. Yeah. Moves a few glasses around, maybe opens a few cupboards, and then they, they come out and, ah, yeah, ah, Mothman ghost. Moth ghost man. And he's just sitting in the corner snickering. And they're like, what's that noise? His snickering sounds like garbled. Right. Because like, <laughs> he's described as having a really high-pitched voice. Right. Which is... Unattractive. Which is unattractive. Because <laughs> we know how muscular his legs were described. And the fact that he... Right, I would, I his, would assume His register is so high. It means there's a lot of estrogen, and I'm not into that. Mm, but maybe it makes him more thoughtful. Sensitive Mothman. I, either way, I'm satisfied. Right. Um, so by November 24th, increased sightings of Mothman turned Point Pleasant into a media circus. News cameras stationed outside the TNT area, you know, tourists. Some of them traveled like hundreds of miles. And it was actually very chaotic for such a small town that wasn't used to that much traffic. It's kind so, of funny. Like, there's just so much pandemonium all about this right. moth man. So I want to touch on Mary Heyer again, a very big player in the story, mm -hmm. sort of a partner in crime with John Keel, who was the UFOologist right. that had come to Point Pleasant to investigate Mothman. Um, so Mary Heyer worked for the local paper, the Athens Messenger, mm -hmm. and she had that column, Where the Waters Mingle. Mm -hmm. This column was all about weird paranormal happenings in the area. After the Mothman came about, an increase of UFOs also came about. Right. She was writing about that. When she started to write about these UFO sightings, she also started to get visited at her office by some strange characters that fall into this concept of men in black. Yeah. Now, some of these aren't like traditional men in black. We'll, we'll talk about those specifically as well. In the book, Mothman Prophecies, he sort of just refers to them as creeps, which is the, it's these <laughs> people funny. that aren't right. They don't look right. They don't mm -hmm. act right. And they're asking weird questions. They normally come in pairs. Yeah. And they will approach people that know something or know somebody who knows something. Journalists that would report on UFOs, they would get visited by the men in black. And they always ask questions that are kind of strangely worded or they speak in a sing-songy voice or they sound like a robot or something they don't sound right in some cases they don't have any hair on their face no eyebrows nothing right and they have like very strange eyes they're always hypnotic yeah. sometimes they're bulgy like they have a thyroid issue right at first you look at them and you go huh but then once you start talking to them you go oh hold on a second this is a nightmare right it's <laughs> one of those this? things the more you look the weirder it becomes in the book he writes about the men in black quote 
In nearly every case, there was always some small error, some slip of dress or behavior which the witnesses were usually willing to overlook but which stood out like a signal flare to me. They often arrived in old model cars, shiny and well kept as brand new vehicles. Sometimes they slipped up in their dress, wearing clothes that were out of fashion or, even more perturbing, would not come into fashion until years later. Those who posed as military officers obviously had no knowledge of military procedure or basic military jargon. What troubled most was the fact that these mystery men and women often matched the descriptions given by contactees who claimed to have seen a UFO land and had glimpsed or conversed with their pilots. So he's just saying the UFO, UFO countries. pilots are like the men in black. So there's two schools of thought. There's like, okay, they're related to the men in black. They are the men in black, whatever. But there's this other school of thought that the men in black are somehow at odds with whatever the UFOs are. They're like the bureau that keeps things in check. Yeah. It's what I like about the men in black is is the idea that they are trying their best to blend in. And they still can't. And they still can't quite do it. So that's why in modern uh, sightings of the men in black, modern encounters, they still dress in suit hats and everything right. well, so out of era. Suits are very universal and they're timeless. Exactly, yeah. But something's always not quite right. Now, when I think about that in relation to the Mothman, the Mothman resembles a sandhill crane, but something's not quite right. Hmm. What if something was trying to replicate a local animal and got it wrong and became the Mothman? That's true. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, maybe they saw the other cranes chasing down cars. So I thought maybe that's what you're supposed to do. Like that's normal behavior. So that's what it did. Yeah. So here's some interesting visitations that Mary Heyer got. Okay. January 1967. A very small man entered her office, the publication's office for the Athens Messenger. He was about four foot seven. This is January. It's 20 degrees outside. He walks in wearing a t-shirt and slacks. He had dark, deep-set eyes with thick glasses and a black bowl cut. His shoes had incredibly thick soles that gave him at least an extra inch or two from his height, which is already significantly short. Mm -hmm. He spoke in a low voice and asked for directions to the town of Welch, West Virginia. She thought he had a speech impediment, but it was more like some sort of accent that didn't exist. Like when they say, you know, oh, do a character, do a voice, and someone just comes up with something off the top of their head, but they're trying to make it sound like something. Right. Somebody was trying to come up with a voice. And so he wanders in from the cold. He starts asking her how to get to Welch, West Virginia. He rambles kind of incoherently about how his truck broke down in Detroit, and he had to hitchhike his way down here and... He made unflinching eye contact, and every time he spoke, he kept on getting closer and closer to Mary Heyer. Mary is so disturbed that she goes to get her manager. So he hitchhiked his way from Detroit to Virginia? Yeah, which requires a lot of hitchhiking. Yeah, and how if you break down in Detroit... You're dead. There's there's no hitchhiking at that point. Also, this is the late 60s, so like for sure. Yeah. That's like when the riots were happening. So they're talking to this guy. The guy's talking about West Virginia. And uh, Mary is very well informed locally. Even John Keel says in the book, if you want to know about the area, you come to Mary Heyer. Mm-hmm. So she's very well versed. Both her and her manager walked away with the impression that this guy knew more about West Virginia than they did. Keel writes, at one point, the telephone rang. And while she was speaking on it, the little man picked up a ballpoint pen from her desk and examined it with amazement, as if he had never seen a pen before. Mary says, you can have it if you want it. And he responded with a loud, peculiar laugh, kind of a cackle. (laughs) Then he ran out into the night and disappeared around a corner. Uh, Weird. So this guy walks in here, starts asking all these questions. He's talking in circles. The phone rings. He picks up a pen and looks at it like it's the Holy Grail. And she's like, do you want that? Like talking to a fucking three-year-old. You'd think along his travels, he would have seen a pen before. Right. The next day, Mrs. Heyer checked with the sheriff's office to find out if there was any mentally deficient person on the loose. The answer was negative. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, many. This is America. Mary Heyer does eventually meet a more traditional example of what would be the men in black. This is December 22nd, 1967. We're jumping all the way to after the bridge collapses. This Mm -hmm. is a couple of days. All anyone was talking about was the Silver Bridge. Okay. News teams from all across the country mm-hmm. coming and asking her questions over and over yeah. again. And at that time, Mary Heyer is looking over a list of the confirmed dead in the following weeks. She has to write articles 
about the developments and the families and all this stuff. Right. And she says that in all of her career, those were the only articles she regrets writing because she felt that it was kind of exploiting the town. And at this point in the story, John Keel has already left Point Pleasant. He's done the Mothman investigation. He leaves before the Silver Bridge collapses. Mary oh, hasn't okay. spoken to him. He lives in New York. So out of the cold again, two men visit her office. They were short in stature, both wearing black overcoats. They looked like they could be twins. They, they were tanned, like darker complected. They were vaguely Asian with their features. Okay, so maybe not tanned, but just Like Mongolian ethnic. or something, yeah. yeah. The two men in the suits asked Mary about recent reports of flying saucer sightings. Now, this obviously puzzled her because, like I said before, this is the first time someone's come to her and not talked about the bridge. So they come in. Mary gets this folder from a filing cabinet with newspaper clippings and, and the reports from locals. One of the men says, has anyone told you not to publish these reports? Mary says no. And the man says, what would you do if someone did order you to stop writing about flying saucers? And Mary says, I'd tell them to go to hell. (laughs) (laughs) I love her. And so the two men kind of look at each other and then Mary's like, you know, whatever. And she goes back to her work. By the time she looks back, they're gone. Later that afternoon, another strange character pays her a visit. Relatively short, dark, piercing eyes, Mm -hmm. darker complected, also described as bearing Asian features. He wore an ill-fitting black suit and no overcoat despite the intensely cold December weather. He introduced himself as Jack Brown. A <laughs> lot... such a generic name. Exactly. So with these men in black, it's very common for them to have like, you know, Smith, Chase, Jones. Yeah, Chase Smith. Whatever. Like names that you could just throw a dart at the board. Adam Jones. And yeah, Adam Jones. Yeah. Sorry if you're an Adam Jones or a <laughs> Chase Smith. <laughs> yeah. So Jack Brown told Mary that he was a UFO researcher. And one thing she noticed, he had unusual hands with incredibly long fingers. Ew. Which I think is just the creepiest little detail. Long fingers? It's like, what the fuck? Especially when you're short. Jack Brown behaves awkwardly. He kind of stammers. He can't Mm -hmm. get a sentence out straight. He asks Mary, what would you do if someone ordered you to stop? To stop printing UFO stories. Jack claims to be a friend of John Keel. She tries to get rid of Jack. It's getting late and it's time to go home. Jack asks if Keel is still in Point Pleasant. And Mary says, no, he went home to New York. And Jack then accuses Keel of lying about seeing a UFO. And Mary comes to Keel's defense and says, well, I can account for some of his sightings. Mm-hmm. And then Jack asks if Mary can show him around town to the locations of where UFOs were sighted. And she's like, no, I'm not going to go somewhere with you. Right, um, weirdo. All around town, people are getting visited by this really weird, awkward man named Jack <laughs> Brown who like... Seems like he's not from here. Yeah. And just like how he doesn't look like anybody. <laughs> well, who looks like that? So we we're talking about Mary Hire. We we're talking about her relationship with these weird dudes. Mary Hire has a niece. Everybody knows everybody. It's a small town. Mary yeah. has, has a niece. Her name is Connie Carpenter. Oh, that's a right? famous name. Did you know there's a form of pink eye that's reported to develop in some individuals who witness UFO sightings? I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. It's actually a condition called actinic conjunctivitis, also known as Klieg conjunctivitis. Okay. It's contracted when the eye is exposed to ultraviolet rays for a prolonged period of time. So if you're not wearing like an arc welder's mask yeah. when you're welding, you'll get pink eye. So like really, really intense light. Yes, exactly. Mary Hire's niece, Connie Carpenter, was one of the many locals that witnessed Mothman, and the encounter left her with this conjunctivitis for two weeks. Remember, he has got those red glowing eyes. <gasps> UV She red stared eyes. especially long into those eyes. And a year later, Connie would be paid a visit by Jack Brown as well. And he would ask her again about Mary Hire. It's the same question all the time. Mm-hmm. And Connie noted an additional characteristic of Jack Brown is that he seemed like he didn't talk to you unless you were looking into his eyes. Maybe that's a respect thing. Maybe it's an alpha male thing. When I think of Jack Brown, I think of an alpha male. <laughs> yeah, he, definitely. He knows, how to, he knows how to command a room. Yeah. Uh, so Linda and Roger Scarberry. Remember when I said that the Scarberries moved in with the McDaniels? Mm-hmm. Linda Scarberry's parents, her and her husband, were living in their basement because the yeah. trailer was making weird sounds. Again, time has passed since then. This is about a year later. Linda and Roger welcomed a newborn daughter, December 23rd, 1967. Linda and Roger Scarberry got home with the newborn baby. Then they get a knock on the door from a UFO researcher named Jack Brown. And at that point, the Scarberries were used to reporters stopping by because of the very famous story of the car and everything. Mm -hmm. And Jack Brown brought a tape recording machine to interview them. He puts it down on the table and does not know how the machine works. (laughs) 
<laughs> so very peculiar um, with his long ass fingers pressing <laughs> buttons. And um, Jack Brown starts to ask them questions. But instead of asking them questions about the Mothman, they mainly concern Mary Heyer and her relationship with UFOs and John Keel. And he asks them, how would Mary react if someone told her to stop reporting on UFOs? And they're just like, I don't know. While Jack Brown is there, again, remember, there's a newborn baby in the house, which is a big deal. So friends and neighbors are stopping by to see the newborn. And Jack Brown hung around there like a little too long. Everyone reports how uncomfortable Jack Brown made them. It's like he was the oddest man I've ever met. He lingered around the house for several hours, not driving off until 11 p.m. And in the book, Keel writes, although the baby was the center of all attention, Brown totally ignored the child not even bothering to show polite interest. When Tom C., a next-door neighbor, was introduced, Brown extended his thumb and two forefingers for a handshake. <laughs> <He's>, like a gun? <laughs> like a gun. His long-ass six-inch Finger fingers. Guns. Yeah. This just sounds like a socially awkward weirdo who's trying to be a journalist and is just really bad right, at it. Right, With no discernible nationality and a suit that does not fit him. <laughs> Quote, Jack Brown said he was from Cambridge, Ohio a small town just outside Columbus. Later, a reporter for the Columbus Dispatch arrived, and in the course of their casual conversation, it became apparent Brown had never heard of the Dispatch, one of the state's largest newspapers, and in fact did not even know where Cambridge was, which is the town he claimed to be from. Mm -hmm. So after that evening, Jack Brown was not seen again. Fuck. Jack Brown was a badass. Jack Brown had a fat ass. (laughs) He, when a man went to shake his hand, finger gunned him. That is a threat. Definitely. That'll get you suspended in elementary school. Yeah. Doing finger guns. Oh, yeah. Are you kidding me? That was a declaration of war. Right. So I'm going to cap this off with one of my favorite parts of the story. (gasps) This is my favorite part of the story, too. How do you know? Because you like it. What a good friend. (laughs) I was not ready for that. (laughs) (laughs) So there is a man... Like in many stories. Spooky. There's a guy named Woodrow Darrenberger or Darrenberger. Berger. Darrenberger. Darren, Darren <laughs> You're looking Berger? at me like I know what this guy's name is. Yeah, I guess is. Darrenberger. Uh, November 2nd, 1966, Woodrow Darrenberger was driving home in his truck. He was a salesman for an appliance company. So he just sort of sold like, I think in the, at this point in time, he had typewriters in the back of his, or no, sewing machines in the back of his truck. Uh, weird. Uh, not interesting, but just a, a detail that I'm aware of. Uh, <laughs> so he was on Interstate 77 outside Parkersburg, West Virginia. 7 p.m., cold and rainy weather conditions. <gasps> a car speeds past him, cutting in front of him. Oh, my God. Begins to slow down, and he sees that it's not a car at all. What? It is. It's a Sandhill Crane. It's a Sandhill Crane. <laughs> it's Jack Brown on a motorcycle looking badass. <laughs> um, it is, in fact, a large aircraft-type vehicle. And it's shaped like, this is how he describes it, quote, an old-fashioned kerosene lamp chimney, flaring at both ends, narrowing down to a small neck, and then enlarging in a great bulge in the center. So picture a, a, a two- reverse hourglass. Yes. Yes. I'm proud of myself nice. for that one. That, High I'm five so me. glad. You know what I was going to say? I was like, yeah, picture a, a double-ended bowling pin <laughs> and then cut off the bulbs at the end. <laughs> yes, exactly. Reverse hourglass. It was this gray, weird vehicle. It's a UFO. Woody slams on his brakes. The vehicle slows down. They're at a standstill. The vehicle then turns crosswise. Mm -hmm. It blocks the road. And a door opens up on the side. And a man steps out. The stranger was around 5'10 with slick back black hair. His skin was tanned. He had on a top coat with a shirt beneath it made of an odd metallic green material. Hmm. So I guess at this point, Woody is parked on the shoulder. Yeah. As he approached Woody's truck, the man was grinning broadly with his hands tucked beneath his armpits. The man communicated telepathically. Woody said, I didn't hear an audible voice. I just had a feeling, like I knew what this man was thinking. He wanted me to roll down my window. So here's a clip from an actual interview with Woody. When he, when he asked me to roll the window down, which I did, I rolled the window down, and he told me, he said, uh, I would like to talk to you. I just couldn't answer him. I just couldn't speak. And at that, that is the first time he told me not to be frightened. He said, we mean you no harm. We wish you only happiness. And this man stood there, and he, uh, he first asked me what I was called. And I knew he meant my name, and I told him my name. 
He said he was called cold. <gasps> My name is cold, like opposite of hot. Weird. Cold's vehicle ascended into the night sky, and cars began to pass by. Cold gestured towards the lights of Parkersburg off the distance, asking Woody what kind of place that was. Woody explained it was a city, a center for business and homes. Cold told Woody that where he came from, they called those places gatherings. Uh, did he ask you what you did for a living, where you were? No, he, asked me, he, he asked me if I, if I worked for a living. He asked me if I, if I had to work to live. And I told him that I was a salesman. And he told me that he was a searcher. A searcher? A searcher. But he didn't tell you what he was searching for? No, he didn't. Cold told Woody to report their encounter to the authorities, promising to return later and confirm it, which is a very weird thing to say. Yeah. When he was getting ready to leave, he stepped back from the truck about one step, and he said, uh, Mr. Dernberger, we will see you again. He didn't say I, he said we will see you again. And then shortly, the aircraft lowers again, the door opens up, cold leaves. Woody went home that night, obviously very bothered. He calls the police, and they're like, okay, well, that's very specific. <laughs> it gets in the newspaper, it gets on a radio show. And some drivers traveling that interstate at the same time as him would later confirm that, oh, yeah, I saw that panel truck on the side of the road, um, and he was talking to somebody. You know, whatever. So his story kind of gained some legitimacy. Yeah. And at night, he would receive these crank calls, people calling, threatening him not to talk anymore about his story. Hmm. that he couldn't explain. And weeks later, there was some strange salesmen in black suits seen walking around his neighborhood. Every house they went to, they were selling something different. One time they were selling Bibles, other time they were selling typewriters. Hmm. And they would stop by at houses and they would, instead of selling something, they would just ask the person questions about Woody. A NICAP subcommittee, um, NICAP is the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. A NICAP subcommittee would later convince Woody to submit to a medical and psych evaluation and that December, Woody voluntarily underwent hours of examination, and he left with a clean bill of health. They said mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with him, no imbalance. Like psychosis or... Yeah, nothing to indicate that this was a manifestation of some psychological issue. Right. So Cole did return. November 4th, Woody's driving with a coworker, and all of a sudden they're driving on the, on the interstate, and Cole's thoughts enter Woody's head. Just sort of saying like, hey, what's up? It's me. How are you doing, man? <laughs> uh, and he explained that he was from the planet Lanulos in the galaxy of Ganymede. He described that Lanulos was much like Earth. There, Cold was married to a woman named Kimi and had two sons. The planet was peaceful. There was no war, poverty, or hunger. On Lanulos, the average person lived to be from 125 to 175 Earth years old. So Cold carries on just sort of pleasantries, whatever. And he says, I'm going to disengage now. I just want to warn you, it's going to really hurt. So he does that. And what he describes having like the most painful headache of his life right in his temple. Uh, later on, we do get a full name. It's Indrid Cold. And okay. if you Google Indrid Cold, you'll see a bunch of more information about speculation about what he is and stuff. Kind of a more out there story. but That's really interesting. I like that. Yeah. It actually kind of gave me goosebumps. I think it's pretty significant. So another part of this that I'm going to read directly from the book, The Mothman Prophecies by John Keel, it, it forms a connection with Woody's story. So this is a story about an encounter with somebody similar to Injured Cold, but it's a person, a thing, whatever, named Vadig. Um, okay. At 1.15 a.m., on the morning of Sunday, December 10th, 1967, a young college student from Adelphi, Maryland, was driving home alone outside of Washington, D.C. As he was crossing the then partially completed cutoff on Interstate 70, leading from Route 40 to Route 29, he saw a large object on the road directly ahead. At first, he thought it was a tractor trailer jackknifed across the road. Then he realized it was a bone-white reflective object shaped like an egg standing on four legs. As he pulled to stop a few feet from the object, he could make out two figures standing next to the thing. Their appearance terrified him. One of the men walked to his car with a broad grin on his face. He was about five feet ten, wore light blue coveralls, thick-soled boots, and he had a ruddy or suntan complexion with large eyes, quote, like thyroid eyes. Ew. The grin remained fixed on his face throughout the episode. Do not be afraid of me, he had said several times in an audible voice. 
His name, he said, was Vadig. He spoke with Tom, the witness, for several minutes, asking ordinary questions about where he was from, where he was going, and what he did, etc. Finally, he said pointedly, I'll see you in time, and walked back to the object. A small door opened and a metal ladder folded down. A hand reached out and helped Vadig aboard, and the thing rose silently into the air and disappeared. Tom told his three roommates about the encounter, but they didn't take him seriously, so he didn't mention it to anyone else. Tom was working his way through school by serving as a waiter part-time in a chain of restaurants in the D.C. area. He had not mentioned this to Vadig, but one Sunday night in early February 1968, Vadig entered the restaurant where he was working and sat at one of the tables. Vadig was now wearing a conventional suit with a black outer coat. Do you remember me? I sure do, Tom answered. They exchanged a few words and Tom brought him a cup of coffee. My presence here would be detrimental to the family trade, Vadik said at one point with a chuckle. He asked Tom if he would be willing to meet with him the following Sunday. Tom agreed and Vadik left the restaurant. I'll see you in time, he promised. After work the next Sunday, a waitress drove Tom home and dropped him off. As she pulled away, a big black car with its lights out glided from the shadows and halted at the curb. Mr. Vadig called out to Tom. Another man was in the car. Tom later recalled only that he wore a gray coat, had black hair, and never spoke. Tom got into the car. It was a very old Buick, but it was very well kept. It looked brand new. It even smelled brand new. They drove for about 30 minutes to a remote spot on the back road in Maryland. When Tom got out of the car, he was astonished to see the egg-shaped object waiting for them. He was put into a circular room containing nothing but a couple of bucket seats and a gray TV screen. Vadig and his companion disappeared into another part of the ship. After a few minutes, the TV came alive. The object shuddered, and Tom watched the image of the Earth receding to a tiny speck on the screen. Three or four hours passed. He was still dressed in his waiter's uniform and did not have a watch, but it seemed like hours before another planet appeared on the screen, grew larger, and then the craft landed with a thump. The young waiter found himself in a place not too unlike the Earth. He and Vadig got into a wheelless vehicle that traveled along a kind of trough. This is Lanulos, Vadig announced with pride in his voice. Their vehicle traveled through a large city with low, flat buildings and signs written in some kind of oriental-looking characters. The people, male and female, were all nude. <laughs> there were some real lookers there, too, Tom commented. <laughs> After the tour, they returned to the egg-shaped craft and took off again. Tom sat alone in the same circular room, watching the television screen for hours. Finally, they arrived back on Earth at the same place from which they left, Tom, Vadig, and the silent man returned to the old Buick and drove for about 30 minutes until they reached his apartment. I'll see you in time, Vadig declared. Then the car drove off. Tom ran into his apartment, determined to wake his roommates up and tell them of his adventure. He found that they were sitting up, waiting for him. But what amazed him the most was the clock on the wall. The waitress had dropped him off around midnight. Now it was only 1.30 a.m. The whole trip, including the 30-minute ride to and from the UFO, had taken less than two hours. His excitement and bewilderment were real, and his roommates took him serious this time. A month later, Woodrow Derenberger visited Washington and appeared on a number of talk shows. Tom was sleeping when one of his roommates burst into his bedroom exclaiming, Tom, there's a guy on the radio talking about lanulose. <laughs> All four were flabbergasted to hear Woody describe experiences very similar to Tom. They called the radio station and spoke to him after the program. Uh, yeah, so essentially, Tom befriends Woody sort of finding some relief that their weird experience was mm -hmm. connected. And later, John Keel wrote about Tom's experience, and Tom had written him a letter, uh, not super happy with the outcome. <laughs> the, the letter from Tom sometime later said, quote, Ever since those appearances, I have been pestered and plagued by a horde of kooks. They call, write, stop to visit, etc. They drove me crazy. Some of my very close friends began to advise me of the dangers to my reputation that these types of individuals were posing. I decided to tell them all once and for all that I desired no more public contact. Although the experiences I had were completely true, I sometimes wish I had never revealed them to anyone. The only reason I made them known was because I thought I could help to verify and help uncover some of the mystery that shrouds the UFO phenomenon. I should have kept my mouth shut like I had planned to when you first interviewed me. And that concludes... Whatever the hell that was, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> sure, like, this is all related somehow to Mothman, and obviously we know that Mothman is this unexplainable thing, mm -hmm. and at the same time, Mothman, there's UFOs, and at the same time as the, as the UFOs, there was these men in black, and at the same time as these men in black, there was these other kind of men in black, but for the most part, these are just stories that 
people tell and some people believe them and some people don't. And maybe there's negative outcomes to both. Like with Tom, people believed him, but as he said before, he wishes he had never talked about it. Right. I don't know what kind of thesis statement I can pull out of that because that was a bunch of everything. That was a lot, but, yeah. Right. There's so much different weird stuff going on at that time in, in Point Pleasant in the surrounding Ohio River Valley. Right. And all connected all and all kind of, It's all and, one big yeah. soup of weirdness. Definitely. But, um, yeah. Well, I'm going to jump ahead of time. Whoa. It's like time travel, but linear. Wow. So I'm going to go to present day Mothman sightings. So He's back. Yeah. The Mothman was seen in 1966, 1967. So all of the things that we were just talking about was within the span of the 60s. Right. But there have been newer Mothman sightings that have been springing up in Chicago. Hmm. There was one article in particular on Vice News. So Vice usually does a good job of, I think, going through and getting really detailed research. Yeah. So that's mainly what I'm going to be using. It's by Josh Terry. And it's titled, What's the Deal? Which I liked. So I'm going to put that in there. <laughs> It starts off explaining the story of John Emerterano. He was working a Friday shift as a security guard, and he went outside and he saw what he describes a plane flying, but also something moving really awkwardly under it. It didn't look like a bat so much as what pterodactyls look like, with the slenderness of its head and its wing shape. I know what birds and what bats look like. This thing didn't have any feathers or fur, and it didn't fly like anything I've ever seen. So what the hell is that? Oh, this is our favorite part. He adds that the thing that he saw had muscular legs. Oh my god. Yes. A jutting tailbone and a human-like shape, and it flew in a strange swooping motion, kind of going up and down, so not so much like flapping wings like we had seen in the Mm -hmm. previous stories as well. Like it just kind of went up and down and flew away suddenly. Yeah. So what John saw that night was one of 55 reported Chicago area sightings of a flying humanoid in 2017. Just in 2017? Just in 2017. So accounts have varied from a large black bat-like being with glowing red eyes to a big owl or something that resembled a gothic gargoyle or... A mothman. So most eyewitnesses spotted the being in mid-flight, but some particularly disturbing reports detailed it as dropping onto hoods of cars, peering in through the windows, and swooping down at bystanders. Bystanders? Yeah, it's like, what the fuck? Come on, man. 55 people have been- You were cooler (laughs) than that back in the day. I mean, with the legs, I'm glad he's taking care of himself. Right, yeah. But bystanders is not okay. Cars, okay. That's okay. We know you're into cars. That's fine. Right. Like, what are you, you're going to tear a dude in half if you swoop at him. <laughs> That's crazy, though, dude. Five, 55, 55 in a year. 55, yeah. And that, that year alone, just in Chicago. Uh, so, you know, the people are concerned. So they get in contact with this researcher, Lon Stickler. He's like a paranormal investigator I'm since sure he the is. 70s. Oh, damn. Um, and he claims to have seen both a Mothman and Bigfoot. So very uh, okay. credible, okay. very credible yeah. man here. Make some hefty claims there, Lon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, Lon, really. All right. So since the big peak in Mothman sightings, he's right. been like basically Back in froth- business, baby. frothing at the mouth. <laughs> and he's been like trying to interview all of the right. witnesses and kind of catalog it. So he apparently says the Chicago sightings are unlike anything he's seen in his decades of paranormal investigating flying humanoid people. So this is supposedly his specialty. Flying people. It's flying humanoid things. Um, He says that this group of sightings is historical in cryptozoology terms because it's happening in an urban area for the most part Hmm. and that there are so many sightings in one period. Yeah. He said that he believes there are at least three flying humanoids around Chicago due to the varied locations yeah. and the concentration of the sightings in certain neighborhoods. It sounds like the Mothman has been getting freaky. Uh, <laughs> He's been spreading more than wings. Right. Ooh. And now his offspring are maybe terrorizing the people of Chicago. Papa taught them right. So Lon seems very trustworthy. Uh, I will agree with his... I choose to agree with Yeah, his opinion. I side with Lon. That there are at least three... Mothmen in existence now. The main 
reference that I guess he uses to explain this phenomenon was the wave of reported Mothman sightings in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, where there were very similar reports of the large man-like bird with glowing red eyes, and it was tied to the Silver Bridge collapse. Because the last time Mothman was seen was just before the Silver Bridge collapse, so this is like the first mainstream sighting since that. So apparently Lawn doesn't think that these Mothmen that are in Chicago are like harbingers of doom. Right. You know, like the Silver Bridge collapse. He Mm -hmm. thinks that they're less aggressive than the ones in Virginia. He doesn't know why people in Chicago are seeing as many Mothmen as they're seeing, Mm -hmm. but he thinks they're flesh and blood beings that aren't of this world. Lon, I hope you're right, man. I hope not. I just hope you're right because I want Lon to win one for once. I know, right? I think Lon needs a win. Well, I mean, he has seen the Mothman and Bigfoot, so. So he's, you know what? Yeah, he's already a winner. He's already, he's won twice. He's won twice. Yeah, that's it's like a lot striking of the lottery won twice. Right. Striking the lottery, is that the winning, verbiage I want? Winning the lottery. <laughs> winning, winning the lottery. <laughs> he won it twice. They also interviewed a psychologist from the University of Chicago, Dr. David Galo. And I'm um, sure his thing was, oh, it's nothing. It's a big bird and people are scared. Yeah. So I guess he he focuses on memory. He focuses on reality. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Uh, Specifically how people remember things and reconstruct the past. So like kind of false memory type of thing. The biggest argument, in my opinion, is that against it. I think that is such a... It's such a strong argument because false memories are, like, kind of crazy. Dr. Gallo, I don't know if it's Gallo or Gallo, but I'll go with Gallo. He says it's a selective sample. When people are choosing to report sightings, the basis of data upon which your paranormal researchers are collecting is all self-report. Milan isn't sampling random people and asking if they saw the Mothman. He's just counting the number of people that voluntarily came forward with a sighting. Yeah, good point. So the... People more likely to visit a paranormal-centric website like Lawn's might also be more inclined to believe in and therefore witness the existence of a Mothman. Yeah. So ideas about the supernatural can be transmitted in different ways, like instances of UFOs are reported in the media or represented in pop culture. More sightings happen. You know, one person sees a Mothman, all of a sudden, 50 people see a Mothman. Right. Hence, in Point Pleasant, where like, it started with two or three accounts, and all of a sudden, everybody and their sister has a story where they saw him. Right. It, that is a huge point as well. Everyone wants to... First of all, in Point Pleasant, when all those people showed up outside the TNT area, those are people showing up wanting to see something. And when you want to see something, you're going to see you're it. You're going to see it. Yeah, definitely. So. I thought it was kind of funny, though. Apparently, this phenomenon has a name. It's called the Will Smith effect. It comes from when Independence Day came out, the movie. Yeah. A bunch of sightings of UFOs peaked. Independence Day is about like UFOs and stuff. So a bunch of people started reporting sightings of UFOs. So that's called the, the Will Smith effect. Lon doesn't like this explanation. Really? Surprisingly. Understandably, in my opinion. Yeah. (laughs) I think he's got a good point there. I don't don't want to hear anything else. He's got a good point. (laughs) He says, quote, We have had very few cranks, from what I can tell, which I think is pretty unusual. If the media would have picked up on it more than it has, I think that we would have had more fraudulent sightings. Lon says, screw you guys. None of these people are crazy and I believe them. So screw your Will Smith. I want to have something magical in the world. How about that? <laughs> That's all it's about. People want whimsy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's the biggest draw of like supernatural stuff is because you want to believe there's magic in the world. Because when your parents told you Santa Claus wasn't real, it broke your heart. And you're like, I want there to be Santa. But now want- you're 45 years old in the forest <laughs> with your three buddies and your camo gear. And it's not Santa anymore. It's Sasquatch. Uh, so you're saying he's really out there. God damn it. He's so out there. So Bigfoot is Santa. They're all the same thing. Santa is a tulpa. Bigfoot is Tulpa. Mothman is Tulpa. Just to kind of cap off the Chicago sightings, Dr. Gallo says there are a lot of reasons why there was such a big uptake in sightings. He doesn't deny that these witnesses saw something out of the ordinary, but there is a phenomena where there's basically some real witness evidence. But if there are holes or gaps in the experience, the mind is unable to Mm. fill in the gaps. If something is suggested to them, it becomes a plausible scenario, like the Mothman or like Bigfoot or something. The person might be inclined to fill in the gaps with oh, that suggestion. Absolutely. So 
while these theories might help calm some people down for why there's a flying humanoid uh, attacking people in Chicago, it's still a big phenomenon. Um, right. I wish people would pay more attention to the people attacking people in Chicago. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> that might be worth your time Let's to investigate. Let's focus on the hey, giant Lon. bird man. Hey, Lon, how about we talk about the crime rate instead of your little moth, <laughs> little moth children in the sky? Yeah, come on, Lon. So that's where I'll, <laughs> I'll leave off on Chicago. That's that's, that's, I like that. That's good. That's um... Yeah, it's kind of short, sweet, not a whole lot. So yeah. what do you think, listener, after you've heard all this? What do you think? We think it's a bunch of, bunch of baloney? You think it's something unexplainable? You think it's, uh, it's just a mothman and some aliens and some mm-hmm. scary men from space that smile and talk with their brains? I think it's probably uh, swamp gas. I think it's, swamp it's, gas. it's always swamp gas. Yeah. Every time there's like a UFO, that someone's like, oh, it's swamp gas. Basically, when it's a really hot day and I'm walking around a lot and I get swamp ass. Swamp and ass, And then I yeah. fart, it's swamp gas. Well, you ever notice that when you do that, I always see a mothman? It's related. <gasps> wow. Virginia's just real gassy. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's a good point to leave <laughs> off. Some nice swamp ass. Talk about your Virginia. Jesus. <laughs> um, well, thank you guys for listening. You can email us at according to an idiot at gmail.com. Our Twitter is at idiots accord. We also have a Facebook and Instagram, according to an idiot. We also really appreciate iTunes reviews. That bumps us up a bit and it also just lets us know how you think we're doing. So yeah. if you want to give some feedback, we do read it all. Yes. Uh, good vibrations. Good vibes. Good vibes. My good vibes for the week is coffee, obviously. Yeah. A snobby coffee. My good vibe is little Jack Brown and his long skinny fingers. <laughs> <laughs> Such a pleasurable I've, man. I've never said those series of words. That's a good one. Anyways, guys, I will see you in time. Uh, bye. Stay spooky. Hi, I'm Jimbo. And I'm Terrence. And we are the host of the Tragedy of Cinema podcast, which is a family-friendly podcast mostly about older movies. Join us as we discuss facts, trivia, lesser-known facts, and give our opinions on the movies that we cover for that week. Simply go to your favorite podcast app or program, search for The Tragedy of Cinema, and hit that subscribe button. Thank you for your support. And that's a wrap on this promo. And And cut. cut.